1: 63 years ago today, groups of African-American students and their allies did something that might sound ordinary, but was incredibly risky at the time. They sat down at some of Nashville's downtown lunch counters and asked to be served. These sit-ins drew attention to the segregation of Nashville's businesses, and eventually did bring about change. Today, we'll talk with three people who risked their safety and their futures to take part. But first, Paul Shane Garrett was convicted for a crime he did not commit. He spent a decade in prison before being released in 2011. Then he spent the next 10 years fighting to clear his name, and he won. Last week, Metro Council approved the $1.2 million settlement awarded to Garrett after Criminal Court Judge Mark Fishburne lambasted the police and former District Attorney Tori Johnson for their handling of the case. There are a lot of pieces to this and the Nashville Banner in collaboration with News Channel 5 have been reporting on the story. Here with me now is Steve Cavendish, editor of the Nashville Banner. Steve, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Great to be here, Cleo. So l- let, let's start with the beginning. Who is Paul Shane Garrett, and what was he arrested for?
2: Paul Shane Garrett was was arrested um, on suspicion of murdering uh, a prostitute in two thousand one. It was a two thousand cri- year two thousand crime, and Garrett, uh, after two years of being in jail, eventually pled guilty to the to the crime. And, and he says, and has said in, in interviews that he was faced with the death penalty uh, that was being kind of levied against him, and he mm-hmm. feared it, and, and and so he pled guilty uh, in order to kind of take that off the table. And so he ended up spending uh, ten more like, a little more over 10 years in jail. Now, well, I should say in prison.
1: Now, in your story with News Channel 5, you report that there were irregularities with the investigation. Can you talk to me about that?
2: Sure. Uh, from the beginning, there were always doubts kind of lingering kind of within the DA's office. Uh, there was uh, there was a situation where the the cops in the case uh, really pressured uh, pressured Garrett in interviews and really kind of f- cobbled together what they said was a confession, but he never actually confessed. But the problem is is that the cops lied on the stand in a preliminary hearing. One of them said uh, said in open court that he that he confessed to the crime. Uh, Which was which was not true, and so he felt like, you know, I I can't go against the what the police are saying about me. I'm I'm going to plead this out uh, in order to kind of avoid avoid the death penalty.
1: Now you said that you know two years into being in prison, Garrett, you know, pled guilty. He he took a confession, but did he continue to profess his innocence to friends, family, and his attorneys?
2: He did. He he he, and and he fought this. uh, He fought this. Tried to fight this through the system, and then after he was after he was released in December of 2011, uh, sought to have the conviction overturned. Uh, but th- there were some things that came up sort of in the interim that were problematic. N- notably, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation uh, got a what's uh, got a hit in their CODIS system, which is a DNA database, which identified someone else as being potentially the the person who killed Velma Tharp, the yeah. the the victim in this crime, mm-hmm. and. It was never disclosed to. It was never disclosed to to, to Garrett until later, and so this this becomes uh, this becomes a problem. And some some cold case cops uh, in 2011 are looking through uh, a number of crimes that uh, um, against sex workers around this and around this period from 99 to 2000, and they go back through Garrett's file and they see this codis hit, and they're like, "Wait a minute." That there was, there's potentially someone else here, and so a guy named Mike Rowland, uh, who was, a, who was one of the cold case officers, uh, digs back through this, uh, this, this file and finds that there's a, a lot of problems. Finds this kind of like shaky confession. Uh, there's n- not much documentation kind of in his file. Uh, all sorts of issues, and so he takes it to the DA's office, and and the DA's office ends up. Uh, ends up reinvestigating the crime. Now,
1: in your in, in your reporting, you say that there was a "quote unquote" clandestine meeting.
2: Yeah, that's there. that's uh, that's Judge Mark Fishman's uh, uh, noted uh, no, uh, term. Uh, uh, District Attorney Tory Johnson. I'm going to stumble all over this. That's okay. uh, District Attorney uh, Tory Johnson, uh, Chief uh, uh, Police uh, Police Chief Steve Anderson. Uh Kathy Morante was an ADA at the time. The public uh, information officers, Don Aaron and Susan Nyland, uh from the from the police and and DA's offices, and Tom Thurman, who was the deputy DA, all had this meeting and were trying to figure out what to do with this information that Roland brought to them. And so uh, Tory Johnson issues uh, command uh, commands uh, asks uh, Morante to do a report. And she comes back with this twenty-page report that has kind of three chief findings: one, there's no credible evidence that Garrett did the crime; second, uh, that there's actual there could be actual evidence of his innocence; and thirdly, they name this this guy Calvin Atchison, who was the person who showed up in 2004 uh, from the in the CODIS database as being potentially the person who killed Velma Tharp. So, what was the result of this secret meeting? What they do next? Very little. Uh, yeah. So, Da John- uh, Johnson sent a letter to the parole board that said, basically, we don't have a lot of con- we don't have a lot of faith in this conviction anymore. So, if you want to go ahead and let him out, that's you know that would be fine with us. Uh, I'm I'm a paraphrasing. It, I, it was a big long letter, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, but. He doesn't want to be in the parole system, and so he actually serves out the rest of his of his term toward uh, to the end of the December of two thousand and eleven. and he ends up uh, getting out and being free. And then that's when he starts fighting for the sort of post-conviction relief. And uh, there's actually a hearing in two thousand and twelve. And at this point, the cops know that DNA implicates someone else and've known for a while, the DA's office doesn't have any faith in the conviction, and as a matter of fact, they have a they have an internal report that says we don't think he did it. And yet Tory Johnson's office in 2012 defends the conviction in court and defends it at the appellate level as well. Mm. And this really kind of prevents Garrett from getting any from getting any sort of relief um which he would later do in the settlement.
1: Now, in your story, you write that it wasn't until 2021 where the case was considered by the DA's Conviction Review Office. How was it brought to the attention of District Attorney Funk? So
2: Mike Rowland, uh, the, the same mm. cop, the same cold case cop, when when this Conviction Review Unit uh, was formed, went back to, uh, there's an assistant district attorney named uh, Sonny Eaton who's running the, the Conviction Review Unit, and said, hey, I've got this case that I've never felt good about. Uh, I, I wish you'd take a look at it. And Eaton goes and and pulls Garrett's file. And the first thing she sees is this code is hit. And she's like, uh, she's kind of flabbergasted. And then she sees this internal report that the that the DA's office knew about it mm. and is just absolutely flabbergasted. So, so they... Partnered with the Tennessee Innocence Project, they they reinvestigate the you know the, the entire case, and their office concludes uh, that this sort of merits vacating that conviction.
1: Now, last year, Paul Shane Garrett sued Metro government, the DA's office, and the police department for eighteen million dollars. Last week, a settlement was reached for one point two million. You write that outgoing criminal court judge, and you mentioned it earlier, Mark Fishburne did something rather unusual in his opinion.
2: So, so the. Uh, the district attorney's office has gone back and charged Calvin Atchison in this case. He was the the, the other person uh, whose DNA showed up. In that case, they're in a, kind of a preliminary hearing stage. And it comes, bef- comes before uh, Mark Fishburne. Mark Fishburne ha- did not run for re-election. Uh, he's kind of finishing up some cases in a sort of a special capacity. He's sitting in this preliminary hearing and reviewing... The arguments in front of him and reviews the conviction review unit file and, and all of this and just absolutely excoriates the uh, district attorney Tory Johnson's office and MNPD basically says they knowingly left an, an innocent man in jail for ten years. Mm. They called it malfeasance. He called it uh, called it you know a failure at every level of local law enforcement. And it was just really an extraordinary sort of order and. I, I, I've never seen anything like that lawyers that I've talked to have never really seen a sitting judge just kind of rake uh, a department over the coals like that and I, I think it's I think it's really interesting because fisherman does fisherman has a reputation as being a very straight shooter he's not like somebody that goes off on these sort of tangents and so I, I just thought it was extraordinary that you had this and and that you know, nobody was talking about it.
1: How was this story kept out of the press for so long? That's a question I have.
2: You have to have a functional press in order to, <laughs> in order for that to, 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 to be, uh, I think, a legitimate question. We don't, we don't cover the courts anymore. I mean, in, in the, in the 90s, uh, when the Tennessee and the banner were going head to head and you had, you know, big daily, uh, newsrooms kind of going after each other. You, know, you had multiple people in each newsroom covering different facets of the court every day you know you had you had people who were whose offices were in the courthouses and so they didn't they didn't miss these sorts of things now you're lucky if somebody you know, is is even reading court dockets on a regular basis mm. and you know we talk about kind of things that are talk about things that are that help a democracy function kind of the ability to have oversight over the courts and the, for the people for the ability for people to understand what's happening in our court systems is a is a big part of it. You know, this is something that I think, if it had broken twenty five years ago, would have been a three or four day story of uh, of this this extraordinary order from Fishburne and then reaction and then kind of delving into okay how many how many possible cases like Garrett's are out there mm-hmm. how many different. Uh, you know, how many different interactions have people had with the justice system that were as screwed up as this one uh, and you don't have that right now because we we don't have the same we don't have the same bandwidth as as a functional press
1: steve cavendish is the editor of the nashville banner you can find his story in partnership with news channel 5 on this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org steve always thank you for being here and thank you for this reporting thanks Khalil. appreciate it we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take you out to the old Woolworth lunch counter where 63 years ago today, young students took a seat to fight segregation. What do you know about the Nashville sit in? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil a. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Downtown Nashville in the 50s and 60s was a bustling shopping district, but not everyone got to enjoy all that downtown had to offer. That's because, of course, Nashville's lunch counters were segregated. But on this day in 1960, that started to change. A few times a month, we're gonna take you out into the city with us to show you an ordinary street corner, a vacant grocery store, the side of an office building. Now I know what you're thinking, that doesn't sound very exciting. Our goal is to take you back in time to bring our history to life, to show you what our city has been. Today, we're dropping a pin at 2021 representative John Lewis Way, 221, Representative John Lewis Way, pardon me, the longtime home of the Woolworth Department Store. It's a place that would become famous as one of the locations where Nashville students staged the first sit-ins 63 years ago. To understand why these students chose this location, you have to understand that back in the mid-1900s, there weren't malls or big box stores. So Woolworth and stores like it were the places to go to shop, grab a bite to eat at the lunch counters. We'll... Our senior producer Steve Farouche is going to take it from here.
3: As a twelve-year-old, Reverend Marguerite Smithson remembers going downtown with her mother, Mama Body, as she was known around North Nashville.
4: We always wanted to say, "Mom, we want to go in and eat in there at the counter," and she had such a sad look on her face, but yet a determined look. She says, "No, baby, we can't go in there. We can't eat in there. We'll get something to eat when we get home."
3: Now,
5: Linda Wynn's family. Did go inside. One could go in and spend their money for goods, but you could not spend your money for a service. And certainly, being able to partake of a meal or fountain drink was a service. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was the the irony of the uh, whole thing. You know, your money's good enough for one part of the store, but not good enough to uh, sit at the welcome table, if you will.
4: Table, one of these days hallelujah i'm going to welcome
3: it was during table. this very hour in 1960 that african american students welcome, from fisk table, american baptist college days, and tennessee a&i as tsu was known then decided to challenge this norm register. they walked into woolworth along with crest and mcclellans sat I'm down at the lunch counters and demanded a to a be a served of of just like their white counterparts Many were jeered and beaten. It was there at Woolworth that civil rights activist John Lewis was arrested for the first time on the street that now, six decades later, bears his name. As desegregation efforts intensified, Black Nashvilleans started boycotting the downtown stores altogether. By May, six of the downtown lunch counters were open to anyone. It was a win for civil rights, even if it was only a fraction of the city's businesses. Still, being allowed is not the same as being welcome. And as much as Marguerite Smithson had longed to eat at the Woolworth lunch counter, she didn't end up going after all.
4: You know what? I never did. I really never did. It it was odd. I just didn't have the desire to go in there. I really didn't. <laughs> now, there are some people who really did, they rushed to go in, uh, but I never did. I think it was part of it was I never forgot the look on my mom's face, that she was trying to give us the best that
5: she could, and she could not do that one simple request, go into Woolworths and eat. I'm gonna sit at the welcome table one of these days.
3: the sit-ins were really only the beginning of the fight for equality in Nashville. And this building will forever be synonymous with that struggle, even if that history became less and less visible as the years went on. After Woolworth shut down in 1993, Dollar General eventually moved in, and it looked like a Dollar General. After that, the building sat empty for years until Tom Morales came along.
6: It was in really bad repair. Tom is something
3: of a serial restaurateur. His company revamped the Loveless Cafe and Acme Feed and Seed. And Tom had a plan. He wanted to resurface this history and put it on display in a new restaurant called Woolworth on 5th.
6: We kind of crawled through every space in there trying to figure out how we could bring it back to the day that John Lewis was arrested. And I mean, we even found uh, white only bathroom signs. And I mean, it it was uh, a chilling uh, discovery walk through that building.
3: His company spent about $2 million meticulously recreating the lunch counter and the period-specific feel of the space, using photographs from the Nashville Public Library as reference. They even found original Woolworth stools from the 1960s on eBay. It was a huge endeavor, but preserving that history was important to Tom.
6: I spent most of my adult life trying to save history, you know, in uh, buildings in Nashville that I saw as a child that were,
3: that were significant. And the Woolworth Building was certainly one. But even after all of that, Woolworth on 5th closed down after only two years, just before the pandemic hit. Shortly after that, the building made the yearly Nashville 9 list of endangered properties. Brian Mansfield, with Historic Nashville, Inc., says that wasn't because the building itself was in danger, but that the history could be.
2: Historically, the the most important thing that
0: happens in that building happens really in the space of about
3: one year. In the grand scheme of things, that's less than a hundredth of the time this building has been standing. But that year, 1960 is one of the most transformational moments in this city's history. For whoever the next owners would be, Historic Nashville suggested they bring in a trained preservationist.
2: The last thing that you want to do is stick a bunch of historic items into a window front display because the sunlight will bleach those things out and then you you destroy them even while you're trying to show the historical significance. I mean, that's that's one of the dangers that, that well-intentioned people with a passion for history can, um, they, it's a mistake they can make if they come in without the training and
6: preservation.
3: So the new owners would be challenged from the very start to do right by this space. I'm standing outside of the old Woolworth building with Joe Bravo. He's the VP of operations for the newest iteration, a theater. And right here is exactly what Brian Mansfield says shouldn't be here. Two original stools from the original lunch counter in a window display.
0: Well, when we came in, we were using it to be a theater, but we wanted to at least do some kind of a tribute to the lunch counter and the sit-in. So what we did was, is we did a recreation of the lunch counter. Now these two seats are the actual seats that were in the lunch counter.
3: The display includes an old Woolworth sign and a trench coat, similar to one John Lewis wore, hangs on one of the stools. Uh, You wanna walk inside? Yeah, absolutely. After you. Nope, I'm sorry. I'm
0: sorry. We weren't in the in the business of of creating a historical uh, a historical uh, place of interest. That was not in our business plan. But when you take a business a, a, a building like this, you then have a responsibility to to cultivate that history. And you know, my goal is to make sure that these stories keep being told.
3: The remaining artifacts, like the original wood railing, help ground these stories. And Joe has found what he believes to be an old whites-only water fountain that he hopes to restore. There's also the original white tile backsplash from the lunch counter on the second floor, still intact with a large cornucopia design every few feet.
0: So the lunch counters ran from about right here all the way down. And this is the backsplash, and you can see there's menu boards and whatnot here. But this was one of the original items, and we wanted to preserve it. And even though it's been beat to hell, We wanted to make sure that when people walk by here, they could see it. So we'll be adding some plaques.
3: At the far end of the counter, Joe stops. This spot is something you might recognize from the documentary, John Lewis, Good Trouble.
0: Right here in that video, you can line up the corner of the wall. You can line up um, the railing and whatnot. And you can see it was John Lewis was here with one of his compatriots and they were getting beaten right here. When I watched that, it gave me chills because I walked through here every day.
3: So Joe is certainly trying to preserve the history. But the Woolworth Theater has also made changes. Down on the main floor, there used to be another lunch counter. This is where Tom Morales and his team had built the replica counter that was a centerpiece of the Woolworth on Fifth restaurant.
0: It was not where the original lunch counter was. It was about a foot and a half further out. There's another wall there. So, and it, it really needed to be ripped out. We had to redo it.
6: That choice caught Tom's attention. I called Raising Hell when they started ripping out stuff. And then they're saying on Facebook, they're not ripping it out. And we go into the alley and there's, a million dollars' worth of work laying in the back alley and dumpsters. The idea that we would meticulously restore that building to as it once was, as it was the day John Lewis was arrested there, and then the total disregard coming in after us and uh, just ripping out, for no good reason that I can see, other than it made it easier to build
3: a stage, maybe. That's not the only concern. Last year, the Woolworth Theatre came under scrutiny when they hosted a private screening of Candace Owens' film The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, George Floyd and the Rise of BLM. The event was sponsored by the conservative media company The Daily Wire. Its co-founder Ben Shapiro has argued, among other falsehoods, that systemic racism does not exist. Attendees at the event that night included Kid Rock and the rapper Ye. Who had recently made headlines for a series of anti Semitic comments? Having an event like that, in a place like this, with such a strong tie to the civil rights movement and its current iterations, seemed a bridge too far for many. But Joe Bravo doesn't exactly see it that way.
7: Well,
0: I, I don't really comment on private events. The one thing I will say is this is an inclusive space. There are gonna be people that we agree with and there are going to be people that we disagree with. But one of the things is, is, is in being in an inclusive space, that means you're welcoming to everyone.
3: This has not always been a place that was welcoming to everyone. And changing that did not come without struggle. So whatever business Prince 221, Representative John Lewis Way on its business cards, the old Woolworth Building will forever be connected to what happened here in 1960. Linda Wynn, from the Tennessee Historic Commission, says it's vital we don't forget.
5: And I would say yes, that that history of that building still remains ever present, uh, certainly in the memory of those of us who were here. Unless we keep the history and the narrative of that story alive, it becomes lost on uh, the younger generation. And, and I fear with, if I dare go here, the banning of African American history. The generation coming after this will know absolutely nothing.
1: My next guests know firsthand what this history means. King Hollins and Frankie Henry were two of the students who sat down at segregated lunch counters on this day in 1960. King, Frankie, I want to thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you. King, I'd like to start with you. How did you get involved with the civil rights movement?
7: Well, uh, <clears throat> I was a uh, student at Fisk uh, University, uh, freshman uh, and, uh, uh, I was, uh, a part of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, student, uh, International Student Center, uh, and, uh, since I was a Nashvilleian that, uh, stayed on campus, I had an opportunity to interact on a regular basis with, the uh, Fisk, uh, student body, uh, as well as, uh, Have continued to keep my uh, association with the rest of uh, Nashville, city Nashville. Uh, I had been uh, exposed to some of the early training efforts by uh, the uh, school Jim Jim Lawson and some of some of those people uh, that were uh, teaching nonviolence. and uh, in exploring the opportunities uh, for nonviolent movement in Nashville, and as a result of that, uh, I attended uh, a camp for uh, nonviolent training in Mount Eagle, Tennessee, uh, with the uh, Miles Horton, uh, who was a labor activist, and uh, uh, and this the school there was one of the training grounds for. Uh, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. So as a result of uh, that movement and exposure, uh, I was uh, uh, involved in the early stages of of the movement.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour about the lunch counter sit-ins that started 63 years ago today with King Hollands and Frankie Henry, who were there. Now... Frankie, I understand you didn't take part in the training because you became involved in a different way. Can you tell us about how you found
4: the movement? Yes, I was a freshman at Tennessee State University. At that time, we, we were seeing a and State University. I was a physical education major, and I wanted to be a pepperette mm-hmm. There was a tap dancing team and you tap during the halftime of the basketball games. I lived in South Nashville, so my father thought I would be in the library at that time after my classes, but I was trying to enter into the tapping team, so <laughs> I would tap, and when the uh, classes were over, I would tie my tap shoes in a, bow and throw them across my shoulder, go in front of King's Hall and catch the Jefferson Street Bus, because I lived across town in South Nashville, Mm -hmm. and they had a shelter up on 6th Avenue, and I would take my transfer, and we got to the shelter, and I hid my books in my arms and my tap shoes over my shoulder. And this young white lady met me coming off the bus and said, are you a college student? I said, yes. Mm. She said, will you walk with me for a while? And I'm saying to myself, what does this white woman want with me? Mm. And she said, please. And I said, what's up? She said, this is the first day of the city it's and um, I don't have anybody to go in Canes Loans with me. And I want you to join up with me. So we walked through the arcade and down Fifth Avenue. The first place I looked in was Woolworth. And I saw all black students sitting at the counters and I said, oh, they're going to get in trouble. We can't do this because I didn't know anything about the city movements. Mm-hmm. And uh, we passed McClellan's. Students were sitting at the counters. Cresses. And students were sitting at the counters. She said, Frankie, you have on-the-job training. I said, we've been meeting at Kelly Miller's Church and. She was talking about the nonviolent movement that King Holland referred to. Mm -hmm. She said, I don't have anyone to go to King Sloan's with me. Will you go? So I said to myself, now, if a white girl can put her life on the line, a colored girl like me, surely I will go. So I joined up, and I went to Cain's Loans with her, and we sat at the counter, and we closed the counters, the two of us. So we walked back on Fifth Avenue, and when we got to McLeathen's, she said, come, I see an empty bar stool there next to Paul the prayed. He was a white exchange student at Fisk University. However." I knew people at Fisk. My husband for 60 years mm. was a student at Fisk, and he and King Holland graduated in 61 in the same class. Uh, I um, dated him 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. We were a high school sweetheart. Okay. So she sent me beside Paul and told Paul, please, this is Frankie's first day. Take care of her. Were and you nervous at all? No, not really. Um we had a strong neighborhood, so that I I didn't realize how dangerous it was until he was explaining to me about um the city of movements, and I had my left arm on the counter and looking at Paul on the right. And a white lady came, and I felt my arm burning, and she was putting a cigarette out.
1: She put her cigarette out on your arm. I can. You're showing me the scar right now.
4: Yes. So I looked at her, she looked back at me, I looked at my arm, and she didn't do anything. She just held it there until it was out. So I'm only 19, Mm -hmm. and in South Nashville, as a little girl, we would get in fights, you know. Yes. So I took my right Hand ball up my fist and I said, well, this is my first day on the sit-ins and this is going to be my last day because I'm getting ready to knock her out.
1: Yes. So as
4: I was turning, Mm -hmm. Reverend Kelly Miller Smith kind of got in front of her and was telling me with his hand, please don't, no, don't do it. So I kept looking at him, and so I calmed myself down. And as I was calming myself down, she was lighting her matches and pulled my poncho back and threw her matches down my back and Paul grabbed my poncho that had a big hole in it because it burned my poncho. And they took us out. Mm. put us in the paddy wagon.
1: I I want to get to the rest of that story in a minute, but I just want to say at 1240, just about now, just over a minute ago, it was the time exactly 63 years ago where the first students sat down at the lunch counters in Nashville. King, what does that moment mean to you? I mean, we're 63 years to the day, to the minute. Uh,
7: It's a very uh, monumental moment. Uh, it, uh, the movement uh, was a very important uh, marker for uh, the, the civil rights of, of uh, not just Nashville, but for the city. Uh, one of the things uh, that uh, we have to remember is that uh, as their small uh, achievements uh, can make a difference, mm. and the sit-in movement in Nashville... Uh, was was inspirational for uh for the uh, eventually for the country uh, and uh, uh, the support that the uh, nashville community provided uh, and the training uh, that was involved uh, uh, everyone in uh, the city had a part to play those people like frankie and many others when we would uh, per, uh come through the city or uh, come up walk up Fifth Avenue two by two and there were crowds of uh, uh, whites jeering at us it was like walking into the the, uh, st- uh, uh, the stadium uh, football stadium uh, and hearing the cheers of, of people uh, but there were many people uh, who said they could not, practice non uh, nonviolence, but th- their role was to not get involved and to react to mm-hmm. the crowd. Uh, so it made a big difference uh, uh, for, uh, for the movement and for the city. Yes, sir.
1: We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue to learn about the lunch counter sit-ins that started 63 years ago today in 1960. What do you want to know about the lunch counter sit ins? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, in 1960, the first lunch counter sit-ins began in downtown Nashville, in an effort to end segregation in our city. The movement was led by college students. They were harassed, beaten, and arrested, and some were expelled from school. Before the break, we heard firsthand experiences from two of the students who participated in those first sit-ins. Now I would like to introduce a student who took part in the second wave. Professor Gloria Mckizek, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to This is Nashville.
8: Oh, thank you. I'm pleased to be here today on this historic
1: occasion. It is so good to have you back. Tell me, how did you get involved with the movement?
8: Oh, boy. 1960, <clears throat> I was actually a high school student. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, so my background was quite a bit different growing up. Uh, middle-class in such a progressive city as Detroit was back then. and uh, In fact, I was uh, so removed from what was going on in the South, it was only what we watched on television, the news. Mm -hmm. And I remember so clearly watching, for example, what was happening in Birmingham and those young people being attacked by dogs and water hoses. And watching that with my father, they had already decided I would be coming to A&I to attend school. Like so many middle class blacks said, they sent their children to Mm -hmm. historic black colleges. And um, I was just looking at him in amazement because I wasn't exposed to things like that. I went to an integrated school, lived in an integrated neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. And I wasn't totally aware of all the things that I couldn't do as an African-American. I was very fortunate in that. Mm -hmm. And my dad looked at me and he said, I'm sending you down there to get an education. He said, don't you get involved in what's going on. Now, my father was a political activist, but I was his daughter. Mm -hmm. If I was his son, he may have had a different attitude. And I don't know what he saw in me that I didn't see in myself. But my reaction was, why would I do that? Why do I want (laughs) to get in front of dogs and water holes? (laughs) I don't think so, Daddy. Anyway, off Hmm. to school, uh, uh, I, I came and I... Remember just being almost like cultural shock, and what I saw in in the South—the segregation signs, the racism was everywhere, and the big billboards, you know, with little pickaninnies—and mm-hmm. I never saw things like that before. And so. uh,
1: So hmm. you come down to school, you're a freshman. Yes. And against your father's wishes. Yes. You decide to get involved. Uh, What was that tipping point? Hmm. What was that tipping point for you to decide?
8: Well, that's that's what I'm going to get to. Uh, I was in the student union and the uh, Freedom Riders had been expelled. Hmm. And they were going, Freddie Leonard and some of those people who later will get their honorary doctorates for being uh, in the city and were going around the student union, and they were trying to get young people to join in the city. And the second wave. Wood- Woolworths was open, but there were all these other venues that were segregated. From A to Z in Nashville was segregated. And, of course, students did not want to get Involved not at A and I because you'd get expelled if you went to FIS, a private institution. It was a little different, but A and I was being run by the all white male, you know, uh, um, board of of Regents, Mm -hmm. and they said, "No, you get involved, you get expelled." And they came around to our table. And uh, I, you know, said, no, I don't think so. I don't want to, you know, dogs. And, you know, they said, oh, no, they don't have that in Nashville. It's not violent like that. We'll show you what to do. And they just made me feel that I could do this. I could do this. And it was the right thing to do. I think it was kind of in my DNA, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. To and I I didn't know how I would respond. Sometimes you don't know until— you get put in, in the moment, but I have my great grandfather who was lynched in Mississippi for standing up against the whites when he would not sell, give up his property. So I said, It's in my DNA, we're fighters. And I joined them. We went downtown to First Baptist Church, and I received very little training. Everyone was not exposed like. King. I had that one day to get it together and make up my mind whether or not I could, you know, put up with what might occur, and I still wasn't sure how I would react, and we went down to Wilson Quick, and Kelly Miller Smith and others were helping us, telling us what to do, but I didn't even know who those people were at the time. And we went into the restaurant. They had the long counter. We went to the back. Long story short, one by one, they dragged us out of there and threw us on Church Street. And this is a photo of my very first city. And then that's John Lewis leading us and the Freedom Riders. Mm -hmm. And I got... Frightened. That's when I, I got a little frightened because I was about the only one left in there, and I said, "Oh, they might make a, a real example out of me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, you know, they busboys grabbed me. I did what they told me to do: just become lax, don't resist. They took me and dragged me out down that long aisle. There was a crowd that had gathered outside. I didn't know what was going on. And there was a white lady sitting at the counter. When we would go into places, they'd soap up, throw the food away, soap up the windows, Mm. close close down the place. And I guess she was one of the waitresses. And when I, I drew a picture of this, when I went home that evening, I still have my sketch of what happened to me that day. And she looked down at me and she said, don't hurt the little nigger. Now I wasn't used to anybody calling me Mm -hmm. by that name. And I think that was the moment that I realized that I was gonna be a part of this. No one should have to undergo that kind of treatment. And they kicked open the door and threw me out like a sack of potatoes. And that's me, like I'm the black panther (laughs) (laughs) 61 years ago, you know, with my arms folded across my just ready to protest.
1: Yes, ma'am it's that moment. Now, federal, thank you for sharing that story. <coughs> Fellow sit-in participants, Frankie Henry and King Holland, are still with us. You know, Frankie, you spent some time in jail for participating in yes. the sit-ins. Can you can you briefly tell us what that was like?
4: Well, we were all arrested, John Lewis and King Holland and I. We were uh just pushed in we called them the paddy wagon and they just pushed us in there like we were just a bunch of animals. Mm. Uh, my uh, tap shoes were around my neck and my arm was displaced and when we got to jail downtown, they fingerprinted us, took our mug shots, took us up to our cells mm. and while we were there, they had the commode in the middle of the floor, and the cops would never leave the bars, so we would have to make a backward circle mm-hmm. around the commode to have privacy. Mm-hmm. They had the bunk beds, about two or three abreast, with air vents in the beds so the mattresses could breathe. However, they didn't give us any mattresses, no sheets, no pillowcases, no pillows. It was 29, 30, 35 degrees. Uh, we would take our compacts and open them up and put them between the bars and slant them over so we can see King Holland and and John Lewis in the next cell. mm mm-hmm. It snowed some of the days we were in there, and they had to go out on snow. John Lewis and, and King Holland, all the guys had to go out on snow details. They fed us, show them your cup, they fed us out of... Those tin cups. Everything was in this tin cup. The potato soup, the bread, the big spoon twice a day. And you see the markings on here. This is where King Holland would put them against the bars. Mm -hmm. They would. King, how
1: were you able to. And I'm I'm sorry, we only have a little bit of time left. How were you able to keep yourself, your spirit up, and your mind focused?
7: Well, um, because of the. spirit of all of the participants, uh, people like Frankie, uh, and, uh, and, and Gloria who, um, and, and those of us who had, uh, had the training, uh, uh and we knew the importance of, of, uh, the movement, uh, and, uh, uh we we got a lot of support again from the outside community. Mm. Mm. Most people don't realize that uh, it wasn't just the 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 people uh, downtown, but the outside community also participated. When Vivian Henderson, who was the economics professor at Fisk, uh, proposed a economic boycott uh, for Nashville downtown, uh, and Uh, We were arrested uh, prior to that, and and part of the efforts there was to show the city that we needed to uh, put some pressure on the city to do some things. Uh, People in the city supported us with money, property values, and those kind of things to to, to provide bail for for us because it was not a good feeling for uh, uh, especially the females. Uh, to sleep on those slats without uh, uh, any cover or uh, uh, bedding uh, and to have that treatment and the food was uh, uh, again in a very small in a very small uh, cup and
4: they tried us one by one it was over 79 or 80 some of us in jail and the first person they tried Couldn't leave until they had tried all of of us. And so it took over two weeks.
1: Mm. I want to thank you all for being on the show. That was Frankie Henry. She was along with Mr. King Hollett and Professor Gloria McKizak. They all took part in the lunch counter sit-ins that helped to change the course of history in our country. Again, thank you for being here today. On behalf of my parents, thank you for inspiring them. And thank you for giving them ideals that helped myself and generations after Really appreciate you all being here with us today. We want to thank everybody who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're going to learn why the state is rejecting CDC funding for HIV care. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music, Olorange and Namir Blade Special thanks to Betsy Phillips, Alice Randall, and Doctor Larotha Williams. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at this is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our city by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A Colonna. Rest in peace to True Gory the Dove, and we'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Be good to each other.